Connecticut's local property taxpayers are too often stuck with paying for the rising cost of local government that result in large part from the inadequate state aid and the increasing cost and burden of state mandates. That's where CCM's public policy and advocacy team comes in, battling to protect state aid for local public education and other critical town hall services, while working to prevent the burden of unfunded state mandates from falling unfairly on the shoulders of property taxpayers. Here today to discuss how these efforts went in the 2023 Connecticut General Assembly's regular session is CCM's Director of Public Policy and Advocacy, Brian O'Connor, along with Advocacy Manager, Randy Collins. We'd like to thank our sponsors at Gateway Community College and Housatonic Community College. The Municipal Voices, the Connecticut Conference of Municipalities podcast, in collaboration with WNHH LP 103.5 FM. I'm your host, Matt Ford. As always, be sure to give us a like and let us know what you're thinking in the comments. CCM's Municipal Voice podcast continues to present a key forum on important state local issues. The views expressed do not necessarily reflect the consensus views of CCM or member municipal leaders. Brian, Randy, thanks for joining us today. Thanks for having us. Good to have you as always. Um, So I know last time I think we had you on the show, Brian, was the beginning of session, and we just finished the uh, long regular session where the state has to adopt a two-year budget and pass a lot of legislation. And also, I remember, you know, on that day coming back, this was the first kind of full regular session kind of getting past COVID. You know, the the mask restrictions were lifted, the Capitol was open. Did it feel a little bit like kind of a return to normal or, you know, back to business as usual, or is it never going to be quite the same? I was going to say certain aspects were definitely uh, back to normal as far as just having people in the building. Mm-hmm. Uh, but certain things um, still kind of, you know, lingering from mm-hmm. the pandemic where where there was restricted areas uh, where mm-hmm. you had to behind some of the ropes. Uh, but also just the public hearing testimonies where a lot of people did it online. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, a lot of the members, individual General Assembly members, you know, voted from, you know, their office or what have you. So some of the access mm-hmm. issues are still in play and and it's something that hopefully uh, can be remedied in the next year or two. Great. Well, obviously there's a whole lot of stuff going on. So let's kind of dive right into it. And let's start off with uh, the review of the adopted budget and see how our member towns and cities were impacted. So an issue that received a lot of attention from CCM uh, this session and a significant investment uh, from the legislature was local education. Um, What are some of the details uh, regarding education aid in the budget? Well, we'll start off with just kind of a general overview, and then we can, I'll have Brian kind of go into a little bit more about that education piece, which was certainly a a significant win um, for our towns and cities. Um, The legislature did adopt uh, a two-year biennium budget. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's about $50 billion. Um, and I think most of the budget debate was framed at the beginning of the session. Uh, they extended for five years uh, a number of fiscal guardrails that they put in place in 2017 mm-hmm. um, with a bipartisan budget agreement um, that has really put the state in a, a strong fiscal position where years in the years up to that, it had been, you know, how many billion dollars are we short? And mm-hmm. it wasn't where are we going to gain? But OK, let's hope we don't lose too badly across the board. Um, so they reaffirmed those fiscal guidelines and that mm-hmm. really shaped the debate because quite honestly, they had more money um, than they could spend um, yeah. with those uh, guardrails in place. That um, was what we call like a rainy day fund? Um, our rainy day fund, they actually extended, they increased the rainy day fund to 18%. Mm-hmm. Um, so we're at that cap. We are at, Our rainy day fund is filled to the statutory 
Max. We did that editorial cartoon kind of on this topic of, you know, the, the kids with the, the school falling apart. And, you know, is it raining yet? I guess was the question. Mm -hmm. yeah. um, but they, again, but they had re reaffirmed bipartisan, you know, on a bipartisan measure with the governor to, to maintain those fiscal guardrails and, and retain some of the controls. Because in the past, we had seen this kind of boom and bust cycle where mm -hmm. we had nothing. And then also we had a ton of money and they'd spend a ton. And then it would it provided a lot of inconsistency and a lot of, I think, long-term planning wasn't there. And I think we saw on the economic side, a lot of companies were, it made it harder for them to plan and, and long-term economic development on the private sector when they didn't know what was going on. So, you know, with that background, you know, as I said, that really shaped the debate. And and even and against that background, I think it really stands out to how well our towns and cities did. So we did adopt a $50.1 billion, $50 billion two-year budget. Mm -hmm. um, it was bipartisan. It's the first bipartisan budget since 2017. Okay. Um, with and very much overwhelming bipartisan support. A few Republicans voted no in the House. One Republican senator voted no um, when it went through the Senate. But you know, some of the highlights of that budget, you know, that we're really looking at, as you mentioned, we had an additional 150 million dollars in what they're referring to education finance, which as Brian will go into. Mm -hmm. um, in addition to that, we have an additional 135 million, which was put towards phasing in ECS. Uh, we okay. have almost 19 million to maintain to hold harmless towns that were actually scheduled to see a decrease mm. of education aid. Um, we got an increase in pilot, which is a pilot reimbursement, which is payment in lieu of taxes, so yep. money that comes back for statutorily tax exempt property. Um, that was increased by each of the three tiers that are reimbursed. Uh, we'll see an additional 3% um, in their uh, in the reimbursement that they receive, which is mm -hmm. about $23 million. Um, you know, as I said, we saw additional money in some of the other, aid, as I said, in some of the other areas, uh, mm -hmm. excess, more money in excess cost, um, received additional money in, you know, uh, local capital improvement or LOSIP. Mm -hmm. um, and by and large, as I said, when you looked at where some of the other advocacy groups um what they were looking for and the numbers that they got, it really mm -hmm. stood out in stark contrast, um, uh, the the level of municipal support that we saw. But as I said, that $150 million in, in an education finance reform um, was certainly a, a focus, a mean priority um, for our members and, and throughout the session. And I think, Brian, if you want to go into a little bit of how that's going to play out. Yeah, give us a little bit of the, the details there, Brian. Yeah, certainly. Um, yeah, I think Randy framed it well. I think we did very very well, you know, financially in this budget. And I think, you know, the, you know, the, the lead horse here was education aid. There, mm -hmm. There's an additional 68 million for ECS. Uh, there's That's also the educational nine... cost sharing program. Yeah. I'm sorry about that. The acronym for the people at home. That. <laughs> yeah. The education cost sharing grant. And I think uh, what this does is it accelerates um, full funding of ECS. And we're not quite there yet. Mm -hmm. uh, but at the same time, it was definitely progress made uh, for the towns that have been underfunded. Mm -hmm. I think a key provision of this as well is that those who were um, scheduled to see a decrease in their education mm -hmm. aid were actually held harmless. Uh, so no one saw a reduction in their education aid. And there are some other uh, policy reforms within this that, mm -hmm. that I think are important to know is that currently, let's say uh, the town of Hamden sends mm -hmm. a student to New Haven. Okay. New Haven's able to bill them for that student. It's called, you know, for the tuition. Okay. What they've done is 
they've capped that in future years, 2025. So towns will not be losing money if they send a, a, a student out of district to another town or as much money, I should say. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's an important policy choice. Uh, it also incentivizes open choice. This is where mm-hmm. uh, students from inner cities go to a suburban school. Yeah. Um, they're trying to, they put more of a premium on, on it so that mm-hmm. the suburban schools will be incentivized to take more students. Okay. And I think this, is, this goes to the goal of uh, diversity within our educational system. Yeah. I mean, that goes all, way back and kind of always like the, the chef decisions and stuff, right? Yes, it, it's actually the open choice program is part of the chef decision. Uh, some other highlights uh, regarding municipal aid in the budget. Randy mentioned this before, but uh, pilot, which is the payment in lieu of taxes, which helps out, you know, uh, towns when they have stuff that's off the rolls, like state property, universities, hospitals, that kind of stuff. It was an increase of 3%. Uh, what does that mean to the the communities that are, you know, affected that really rely on that in some regard? So this is, I think, continuing um, work that we had begun in 20, um, I want to say 2019, I think was the last time we saw you know, we had a significant increase in pilot. It had just been historically mm-hmm. underfunded, which had really put it, you know, especially some of our urban areas, mm-hmm. uh, cities like New Haven, New London, um, among others, Hartford, almost 50% of their taxable property is off the rolls. Yeah. And by doing that, it just, it doesn't reduce the cost of our towns and cities doing business, but it just shifts more of that burden onto residential taxpayers and, and non-exempt commercial taxpayers. So yeah. It really makes you know housing uh, unaffordable. It makes an economic development. Um, it's really the property tax is highly regressive. And with the promise, what had always been that we'll give you seventy percent of mm-hmm. what you should have been able to tax had it been on the rolls. Yeah. Um, and now we're getting, you know, as you said, now we're going to start to see we're getting, you know, for those tier one municipalities, which is a, a very complex formula I won't go into mm-hmm. right now, but I like got New Haven. They're now getting 53% of that, yeah. whatever was promised. So we're, we're yeah. not there, but we're starting yeah. to make progress. And I think, you know, it would have been irresponsible. You know, we knew that we couldn't go out and say, well, it's easy to say fully fund pilot, give us mm-hmm. everything we deserve. But we also needed a, a formula and it has to be, again, within those fiscal guardrails. And it also yeah. has to be something sustainable. So we got a giant lump sum. Mm-hmm. And then in a year or two, we have a budget hit towns are going to be right back to where they are so one of the main things that we saw uh speaker ritter he meant he spoke with our membership at the beginning of the year like you know the steps that we take have to be you know measured and and sustainable which yeah. can protect us from those swings and i as i said i think that that's why we're going to see that three percent and and it's an addition and it's an area where we can continue uh to work towards to get that mm-hmm. full funding and then hopefully you know once we get there we can start talking about revenue diversification mm-hmm. and and looking about how do we move away from that regressive property tax, which is such a hindrance, of, as I said, housing, economic development, uh, any number of issues that we have to address. Yeah. And, you know, we obviously we understand, you know, the realities on the ground and when we're pushing for some of these things. But when we're talking about something being underfunded, we, we're not asking for more money than than was originally promised. We're actually just asking for the what was promised originally. Right. Yeah, that's I correct. Mean, that's correct. And I, I think it's important to note that, yeah. you know, for our listeners out there is that we, municipalities really only have one source of income, and, and yeah. that's the property tax. And I think by taking the properties off the tax rolls, the pilot program is trying to recognize that, you know, 
that it is our only sole source. So when you have, you know, a city of New Haven that has over mm-hmm. 50% of its property off the tax rolls, you know, this helps them manage their budgets yeah. and uh, helps alleviate some of those uh, burdens of having property off the tax rolls. And I think I just want to highlight one of the things that CCM has done over the last couple of years is, is some of our social media advocacy, press conferences, engaging different stakeholders. I think where they uh, bore fruit was basically with the education aid, with pilot. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think a lot of that is just being, you know, pointing out these discrepancies in, in municipal aid and funding that that uh, where the shortfalls were and uh, how necessary it is to is to fully fund education and if we can fully fund or move toward the goal of fully funding pilot. Yeah, I think it's important because so many of those pilot properties that we talk about, yeah. you know, aren't just for that town either. We're talking about hospitals and things like that. They benefit the entire areas. Another part of the budget that we wanted to talk about was uh, the act concerning Mashantucket, Pequot and Mohegan Fund, uh, which was passed late in the session. Can you talk about some of the revised language it was put out there by uh, Senator Kathy Austin, I believe. Can you tell us a little bit about that and what, what was involved with it? So for years, um, when the state allowed, when the state made their agreement with, originally it was um, uh, Mashantucket Pequots to open the Foxwoods Casino. Mm-hmm. Part of the deal was that they, we would provide the tribal nations with exclusive gaming rights. In exchange, the state gets a portion, um, I think about 20%, don't quote me on that, of mm-hmm. all the slot revenue that comes in. And of that money, they devised a formula that would then be redistributed to, to towns. And there's a, a different formula for kind of host or regionally impacted towns. And then mm-hmm. that remainder of that money uh, is spread out. Over the yeah. years, we've had, again, we talked about those budget crises before, that money had just been whittled down. I think it had been up to about $150 million at one point. It got down mm-hmm. to below $40 million, And right now, we it's slowly come back to $59 million. Um, So what Senator Kathy Austin did, you know, has pushed for about the last two, three years was to redirect that revenue mm-hmm. towards its original goal. And especially in light of, as I said earlier, 18% state budget reserve. Mm-hmm. Why are we still sweeping those Mashantucket Pequot funds into an already statutory capped reserve fund? Mm-hmm. Our municipalities could use that. Um, so what this bill does starts in fiscal year. So starting in FY26. So it's not mm-hmm. just budget budgeting, but the next one it increases um, the amount of money that's going to municipalities from the fund by almost just under $90 million. Um, so mm. it'll take it back up to almost its high. I think it'll go to $139 million annually that's distributed. Um, but I think what's more important, um, because it's easy to put money in and then it comes right back out the first time we mm. hit a budget crunch. Um, she put in language um, that, we, that we worked for um, that will require a two-thirds vote of each chamber. Um, It'll be hard to undo that. To, to, so it really put some handcuffs on re- taking that money back. So it's going to be much more dependable and predictable uh, for municipalities to bank on it. And again, that money is always going to fluctuate a little bit depending on um, the revenue stream, that slot revenue that comes mm-hmm. in from casinos. I mean, it had dipped a little bit during COVID, obviously not yeah. many people were pulling levers, but um it really was for a long-term, uh, you know, as I said, it's two years out before we'll mm-hmm. see that, but really a solid step in the right direction. And I can't, you know, express, uh, you know, the gratitude from CCM and our member towns and cities um, to Senator Austin and the work that she did 
uh, and pushing that through. And it was really a, a nice win for, for everybody at the end of the session. Yeah, it's going to be great for our members. You are listening to the Municipal Voice on WNHH 103.5 FM. So it sounds like we did pretty good in a lot of areas, um, but any session, there's going to be some disappointments. Um, are there any areas where we didn't fare as well? I know uh, the early voting funding, I think we were hoping for more. Yeah, they did pass early voting this year. We had the constitutional question last year, which you know passed overwhelmingly that what changed the, our state constitution to allow mm-hmm. uh, for early voting. Um, so, you know, talking with our members this year, it wasn't a, do we like it or not? It was, we're getting early voting. And Mm-hmm. Um, so we worked with the Secretary of State's office, members of the GAE committee. Um, when you know, and while we were really pushing for a 10-day early voting period, mm-hmm. um, they ended up going with 14 days. Okay. You know, best fiscal estimates were that it was going to cost around five million dollars to do this because you're going to have four days of early voting for presidential primary, I believe five days for uh regular uh regular primaries. Mm-hmm. And then 14 days of early voting for a general election. Obviously, these need to be staffed. Uh, mm-hmm. There's materials. There's locate, you know, fiscal requirements. So we we anticipated uh, with the Secretary of State and ROVAC, which is the Registrars of Voters Association, you know, the, mm-hmm. all the Registrars of Voters, um, about a five million dollar annual cost uh, to do this. And as I said, we looked at about 1.8 million dollars is what was put into the budget. Mm-hmm. Um, the way we're looking at it, though, is this will get us through the presidential primary. Okay. Um, and they will have to make budget adjustments next year. They always adjust that biennium budget, uh, you know, to make changes. And mm-hmm. we're going to have to go back. We've already begun conversations with leadership um, that once we have better numbers um, and actual experience of doing the early voting, uh, to go back and make sure that we do get adequate funding. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and it, yes, it's a responsibility of municipalities to administer elections, but the state also has a responsibility. And I think that will that is recognized, and that's something that certainly will be a priority to address next session. Yeah. Brian, do you have, do you have any thoughts on this either? Yeah, I think it's very important, you know, particularly for our municipalities to, to kind of determine what it, the true costs are. Um, mm-hmm. Next year, um, there, are, there is some talk that we may move up our primary, but right now it's scheduled for early April. Okay. And with a short session, the budget's going to be completed uh, most likely in mid to late April. So it's going to be a quick turnaround time, but the numbers should be fresh as well mm-hmm. uh, as far as what the true costs are, will be. And then we can extrapolate that out uh, for a full presidential general mm-hmm. election, um, as well as, uh, you know, general assembly uh, primaries. And, uh, you know, the Republicans will probably have a, actually, another you know, presidential primary will have been completed by them, but at the same time, It'll set us up for the presidential uh, election and then uh, the municipal election the year after. Mm-hmm. So we know it's probably not going to be enough, but for right now, we're going to use that to kind of get through the next few, figure it out, and then reevaluate well, this, there. I was going to say, this is one of those situations where we're going to try to keep them to their word. They said that they would uh, fully fund it uh, dollar for dollar. And, you know, I have to say that um, Secretary of State uh, Stephanie Thomas has been great. Uh, mm-hmm. leading this. She understands. Uh, she's a, a friend of municipalities, and I know she's going to be championing it as well as uh, individual cities and towns. Yeah, that's good to know. You know, a little comforting. Um, so besides some of these direct appropriations, uh, towns and cities receive funds through state bonding programs. Um, 
which help offset the costs of capital improvements, private economic development, things like that, or promote economic development. Um, what are some of the bond authorizations municipal leaders count on that were approved in the budget? Um, so some of the ones, as I said, we have, you know, your traditional, um, you know, I think it's, where are we calling it now? Um, you know, grants for municipal pro purposes, um, mm -hmm. which had, it's about $91 million. They, they renamed it. It used to be grants for municipal projects. Now it's grants for municipal purposes. And it, mm -hmm. it had filled a, a budget hole that had been created uh, a few years back. That remains at $91 million. We did see increases over the last few years. Mm -hmm. um, we did see, as I said, additional money in LOSIP, which is local capital improvement, um, uh, money for local capital improvement projects. That increased okay. by $15 million. So we'll now see a $45 million in each of the uh, authorized $45 million each of the two years of the biennium. Um, they funded the STEEP, which is Small Town Economic Assistance Program, okay. um, which was not did not have money originally in the governor's budget, did not have money for this first fiscal year, but had, you know, was going to be funded the second year the legislature saw uh, to allocate money for that Small Town Economic Assistance Program. Um, we did see an additional uh, $10 million uh, annually for brownfield remediation and redevelopment, which is really key for mm -hmm. a lot of our old factory towns where uh, a lot of these, you go to almost any town, you can see these these old factories that are kind of abandoned, um, you know, broken windows, boarded windows. A lot of them have significant contaminants yeah. uh, within it. So how do you bring these projects? So we've created some pretty strong, um, almost best in the nation, brownfield remediation programs uh, to help you can help developers come in, offset the cost. And these programs, as I said, have been funded at 25 million annually. It is oversubscribed. Um, that's how mm -hmm. popular and how well these programs are run. So to see an additional, you know, $10 million will go a long way to to getting these, you know, as these, these abandoned sites, which really are, are danger, yeah, homeless you know, we'll use it. Um, they're fire hazards, these old factories. Um, but to get them cleaned up, you mm -hmm. know, turned around. And a lot of them have, you know, there's requirements for they're looking for mixed use development when they can. Mm -hmm. So you have some shop apartment style. Um, but all of a sudden you'll see one of these projects come on and you take this boarded up abandoned building and now you make mm -hmm. it something that's working. The whole neighborhood now yeah. will start yeah. to see a rise as, you know, that doesn't have that that ugly anchor in the middle. So really um, you know, to increase the funding is an acknowledgement. I think uh, I, I, the number is roughly, you know, for every dollar that the state invests, they're looking at about, I think it's almost a $15, 15 to $20 return on that investment. So mm -hmm. really strong programs that our municipalities have, have taken advantage of. Um, you know, and as I said, how do we, you know, rather than having that company move out and plow under, you know, undeveloped land, Mm -hmm. How do we get this blighted, abandoned property now put back onto the tax rolls and not only yeah. bringing in taxes, but raising the property values of, for the, the businesses around? So really a good win there. So yeah. um, other than that, as I said, I think our, our bonding allocations were very, very much on line of where we were. Um, mm -hmm. You know, there's a there's money for PFAS in there. If you look through the whole package, it's 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 fairly robust, but we saw money for PFAS, money for police body cam. So a lot of mm -hmm. those little programs, the fives and $10 million there, the three million yeah. for uh, PFAS removal, as I said. So uh, that, again, uh, PFAS, that's the, the chemical in the uh, fire extinguisher things. That was the, yeah. And, yeah. yeah. And so all the, a lot of the equipment that firefighters have used is it's very hard once you've used it, um, you know, really used to put out like 
gasoline fires, mm -hmm. oil fires, but it stays in that equipment and it has found it to be a carcinogen. Mm -hmm. So, but it's onerous to either have to clean that, remove it and get that out or replace. So, you know, having the state acknowledge that, hey, this was, you know, through no fault of anybody's, but we need to do it. Yeah. Uh, provide some assistance to help, you know, our towns as they move forward with existing equipment. Mm -hmm. uh, obviously, as you turn over into new equipment, it's not there, but, uh, you know, one of the other ones, we didn't get money for it, but I did want to mention, uh, we did allow, we did expand the use of LOSIP. Um, mm -hmm. This is really important for our Eastern Connecticut towns. Now you can use existing LOSIP funds for the removal of dead or dying trees. Okay. Uh, because we've had significant problems with the Emerald Ash Borer. Uh, so you're seeing mm -hmm large swaths of trees um that you need not only do you need to cut down because the, the safety hazard they produce they yeah. produce but you can't just get rid of the wood because it's contaminated so there's a whole process by which mm. uh that wood needs to be removed so um while we couldn't get you know set aside money for that at least allowing this this existing state funds to be used for that is a will be a benefit to our town as they try to grapple yeah. with this problem yeah, especially yeah, you know, every time we have a storm that the trees fall down and we all lose electricity, that, that seems like a good use of things. Brian, what were you going to say? Yeah, I was just going to add, there's, there was one other significant policy changes regarding mm -hmm. LOSA, is that now the money will be allocated uh, up front. You know, you don't have mm -hmm. to apply and seek reimbursement. You can have the money uh, sent directly to the town when it's available. Uh, so this way they can better plan and, you know, they, they still have to do the paperwork to, you know, provide evidence of, of the project that they're doing, um, but at least it, it cuts out some of the bureaucracy uh, of having to send the paperwork into the state up, uh, first before getting the money. Yeah. One of the perennial kind of issues that municipalities face to try to find a sustainable solution for is uh, the issue of firefighters who contract cancer. Uh, I know CCM has been negotiating with firefighters for years about providing good benefits to them what were you able to come up with as a resolution? What was the compromise this year? Yeah, I was going to say that this issue has been um, a perennial one, for lack yeah. of a better term, since 2015. Uh, municipalities and firefighters have been uh, negotiating uh, in good faith to try to find enough um, resources to cover uh, the benefits of, of a firefighter who contracted cancer. Mm -hmm. um, and at the same time, find a sustainable revenue source. And I think one of the things that we were able to accomplish this year is uh, one of our main concerns was putting it into workers' comp as a rebuttable presumption. Mm. Right now, you can actually, you know, file for a workers' comp claim okay. uh, as a workplace injury if, if you were to contract uh, cancer. Uh, but there's some issues with that that we tried to uh, remedy. Mm -hmm. with, with what we put forward in. And as part of the compromise, what we've done is we basically mirrored the workers' comp system. Okay. Um, but there's a statewide fund that will fund those benefit levels. They also include spousal benefits besides mm -hmm. just wage replacement. And the, the state allocated uh, $5 million for that fund this year. Mm -hmm. uh, the onus is on us and the firefighters to find a more sustainable revenue stream in the future years, because I think mm -hmm. trying to rely on a, a, a direct appropriation year in and year out would prove difficult. Mm -hmm. um, and also we just kind of want to make sure that uh, it has enough resources so that we can provide the benefits and, and keep it ultimately out of uh, workers' comp. 
Yeah. And that's the the Firefighters Cancer Relief Fund that you're talking about from 2016? Yeah, that's correct. Yeah, that's correct. And I think some of the other components, I think July 1 of this year, this is from a bill that passed last year, actually, we're mm -hmm. going to get uh, a report uh, that basically speaks to the turnout gear, how many, uh, what's the appropriate number, most, uh, many towns already do provide two sets of turnout gear. Um, that will be important. In, in speaking of PFAS, some of the older turnout gear had PFAS. That's so kind of a fire retardant. Mm. Yeah. Uh, so again, you, you kind of link, uh, you know, maybe that PFAS exposure uh, to the cancer presumption. So um, that is one thing. And the other part of it is to, there's special washing machine, washing machine extraction equipment. Okay. Where you actually put the turnout gear in, and we're looking at. Uh, that'll be part of the report as well, how to best approach that. And I think mm -hmm. uh, it could be a regional approach for some of our smaller towns, uh, but we want to make sure that, you know, people aren't sitting around in the gear those days of kind of, you know, taking pride and having just fought a fire and keeping the equipment on. We want to take it off, wash it, clean it, mm -hmm. and make sure that the exposure is limited. Yeah, because that, that equipment, while they're in the middle of fire, can get, you know, fumes, chemicals on it, and that's what they want that special wash to wash off. It's not just, you know, my, my stinky shirt. It's there could be chemicals Correct. on those that they have to take care of. Correct. Yeah. yeah. It, the idea is they would extract all the, uh, you know, the bad all stuff. The bad off stuff. The yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, and, and clean up the gear. So the next time there is a fire that you're, uh, you know, wearing fresh gear. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I think, man, I just want to say, like, I know um, Brian and some of the other members of our team, uh, the amount of work um, and with a, you know, key group, uh, kind of a key working group of our membership, the mm -hmm. effort that they put into this. And, and, and Brian had said, I think he might have still, I think he was still, you know, on the inside uh, before he joined uh, us at CCM. Mm -hmm. This was one of the most hard fought issues and and very personal um, mm -hmm. issues that, that we had to deal with. And I think it shows how, you know, how CCM continues to kind of, you know, from the old days of we just said no to everything. And that mm -hmm. was just kind of the line where we just said no to like, hey, let's reach across. Let's see if we can find common ground. And and when that other side, you know, when the firefighters said, hey, you know, let's sit down. And, and we were willing to talk. And Michelle mm -hmm. Cook, the state rep from Torrington, really started this process of, you know, and over the years, I think we've all given something, not gotten, every, you know, everybody's given something that they wanted, mm -hmm. hasn't gotten everything that they, you know, that they wanted, but it's shown a willingness to work. Um, across the lines to develop, you know, to come together to say, hey, how do we move forward rather than just, you know, just say no and who, you know, and see who can out muscle, mm -hmm. um, you know, and as I said, in, in the, when you turn on the national news and you just see this, you know, the partisan rancor, um, especially at the national level, I think, you know, it's a, it's a, a truly an example of Let's sit down. Let's find a common ground. I don't think yeah. we'd ever disagreed on the, the principle, but it was how to get there. And I said, once mm -hmm. we kind of got past that, you know, and as I said, we've been able to negotiate in good faith. And and when we come together, it is a very strong coalition for, you know, when our mayors and our first mm -hmm. selectmen, you know, working with um, our firefighters or our police on other issues, um, we can be an extremely strong voice and and pushing an agenda forward rather than just saying no. Yeah. You know, and when we take these and we're not fighting, we can push for more money for pilot or yeah. vegan Pequot. So it's, you know, it serves a benefit across the board. You are listening to the Municipal Voice on WNHH 103.5 FM.
What are some other key issues that CCM was concerned with during this session? Um, I know yeah. one of them was uh, the tire dumping, I know, was one we were talking about. Do you want, you want to talk how about that a little bit? <laughs> how long did tires? Say that it was quite a bit. And actually, before we you know speak to the tires, I, I just want to say that uh, you know CCM had 14 policy goals this year as mm -hmm. part of our legislative agenda, and we were able to accomplish eight of them. And which was a very successful year. And one mm -hmm. of the top bills that we had this year uh, was what they call extended producer responsibility, uh, EPR for tires. Mm -hmm. And I think one of the things was, is, is the cost of recycling the tires and, you know, yeah. through that process. So now we created a, a system that's very much in line with what you do with mattresses. Uh, there's an upfront fee that helps alleviate the cost mm -hmm. uh, and also you know the paint program that we've implemented at the municipal level as well which has been very successful uh, and we hope to replicate that with tires and i think one of the things is it with the the illegal dumping it costs mm -hmm. so much money let's say there you know however many tires it's the town's responsibility yeah. at that point for the public works department to pick them up and they don't get uh, compensated for that uh, for the cost of uh, removing the tires and getting them out out of the waste stream you know with the highly publicized tire dumping I, you know it was very fortuitous <laughs> that it occurred when the bill appeared that it was going to uh, die actually yeah um and I, we got uh, kudos from speaker uh, matt ritter who basically mm -hmm. acknowledged that uh, ccm's pushed helped get it back on the agenda and ultimately uh, passed <laughs> that's great I mean, and beyond just the illegal tire dumping, we mm -hmm. saw, I think it was in Trumbull, we saw a truck, it must have been a truckload just into a, into a wooded area. Um, yeah. But you go around our, our our cities and you'll just see tires on the side of the road. And again, it, you know, so you see the big examples, but it's mm -hmm. also that pervasive problem. And now if people know I have a place where I can take it when I get that new tire, it makes it, you know, less likely um you know, as I said, to see that illegal dumping. So besides, you know, again, it's just another good win for yeah. our municipality in terms of this funding and, you know, hopefully a better process that residents will take advantage of. Yeah, if it's if it's easier and cheaper to do the right way from the start, you'll get less of that illegal dumping, which ends up costing more than if you've done it right in the first place. Mm -hmm. Were there any changes to the motor vehicle assessments this year? So last year uh, when they... Uh, passed the biennium or the, the mid-year budget adjustments. They changed the way which municipalities would assess and then tax motor vehicles. Okay. Uh, well, everyone agrees no one likes a car tax. It's a billion-dollar revenue stream. And mm -hmm. until we figure out an, an alternative, that we're not getting rid of it. But they were going to yeah. change because I think one of the problems we saw during COVID was all of a sudden, you know, typically you think, oh, I drive off the I drive off the lot, my vehicle value drops 20%. Mm -hmm. um, and all of a sudden you saw used car vehicles were skyrocketing. And yeah. your vehicle, your 10-year-old Honda was worth more today than it was five years ago because there was just such shortage. And it really threw a lot of people's tax bills, you know, really made it harder for mm -hmm. residents to anticipate what that bill was going to be. Um, so what they wanted to do was move to a manufactured suggested retail price with a depreciation scale that would mm -hmm. obviously just, it would be 90% off the lot then 80, then 85, then 90, and, you know, as an eight or whatever. 
and and so on and so forth until a minimum value was reached. Yeah. Um, there were significant technical problems with the language that had originally been passed because it had been mm. done very quickly. Um, so it was not going to be a we were not in a position where we were going to be able to institute the law. So mm-hmm. early on, we recognized we needed to either delay or basically we needed to amend the law. And then we also needed to delay it for a year. Mm-hmm. And we worked throughout the session uh, with OPM, uh, with legislative leaders, with our municipal partners, uh, the assessors, the tax collectors. Um, we finally reached agreement on how to change the language with the right delays so that we could move forward. Unfortunately, at the end, you know, there were some disagreements within uh, within the Senate, uh, within some of the senators. Mm-hmm. So we have a one year delay on the bill. So there's going to okay. be no changes. So we will be able to tax and collect motor vehicles, uh, tax and, and and send our bills out this fall. Uh, so it's going to be an issue that we're going to have to come back at and, re- yeah. and reassess and, and redo again next year. It's a little frustrating that. Mm-hmm come to a salute, you know, a, a final solution for the issue, but yeah. at least we put our municipalities in a position where we're not going to be detrimentally impacted this fall, which was, I think, the overriding concern going forward. Yeah. It sounds like one of the issues here is that uh, with with the values of the used cars going up is in some ways it was impacting some people who maybe were the least able to deal with with that increase, you know, lower income people who you know have a used car that's not worth that much, but mm-hmm. may have doubled in value just because everyone yeah. else needs an affordable little car yeah yeah and you know where governor lamont had capped motor vehicle mill rates and, and provided reimbursement i think they realized that that wasn't going to give as much relief as they had as they had hoped for mm. on the individual level so this was kind of the book and they were looking at this as the bookend piece to to helping on the motor vehicle side but again it it's going to be a few years off um just because again it it's a really complex set of issues in terms of assessment value billing mm-hmm. dates and how that all worked as i said i know some assessors and i really have to tell them when i ask can you help me understand what this language is and i said i need it brief yeah. um it's, it is like reading stereo instructions at times very complicated stuff uh another complicated issue always is uh housing reform was there any kind of movement on that this year uh there was a little bit of movement and, and actually let me uh, back up a little bit. This was actually one of the more contentious issues up at the Capitol this year. Mm-hmm. And, uh, the original proposal, they called the fair share allocation. Mm-hmm. Uh, that actually was going to be probably one of the most costly unfunded mandates that municipalities uh, had faced in recent memory. Okay. And part of the reason why is because it would allow uh, developers and other nonprofit groups to have standing uh, in order to ensue municipalities to force them to build oh, affordable housing. So eventually that moved a little bit where it just became the developer uh, would be able to have standing. And I think one of our major concerns at that point is that they didn't actually have to be denied uh, in order to sue municipality to accept a project. Um, we were successful in removing that provision Mm-hmm. Uh, but what moved forward uh, is that OPM has been directed by the legislature to see what that fair share allocation should be, what each town mm-hmm. uh, in theory should develop as far as affordable housing. And I think what's what's important about this is that now we'll see the extent to what uh, some of the goals are of mm-hmm. you know, the fair share allocations uh, that 
the towns are going to be expected to move forward on as far as developing affordable housing. Mm -hmm. And we do have input on that. I think, you know, I'm going to give kudos to uh, my colleague, Donna Hamsey, who made sure that uh, municipal representation would at least be consulted as mm -hmm. far as um, the methodology that yeah. they have up with. And I think that's an important provision because the way it was originally structured uh, we were not part of that process. So now that we're part of the process, I think, you know, we feel more comfortable uh, mm -hmm. in working with, uh, in, in this case, OPM, but also Majority Leader Jason Rojas, who this is one of his main uh, legislative priorities. And we understand that, uh, you know, he'd like to move forward on some level, mm -hmm. but at least now we can take a deep breath, participate in the process. Yeah. And then from there, determine what's the best course of action and moving forward. I think everyone sort of agrees that affordable housing is a key issue. Mm -hmm. uh, but you also have to recognize some of the market forces that yeah. are in play that are hindering uh, building affordable housing, either at the at the market rate or mm -hmm. subsidies. So another one I know that came up in this session was uh, pedestrian safety, more specifically uh, what we call red light cameras. So this has been about a on and off for about 10 years, CCM has, has looked at this issue of how do we improve not even just pedestrian safety, but just, you know, roadway safety, because mm -hmm. it, obviously it impacts drivers. But as we're making a stronger push towards, you know, non-motor vehicle transit, bikes, e-bikes, e-scooters, um, you know, walkways, um, we're really starting to see it, you know, a, a significant increase in pedestrian fatalities, uh, mm -hmm. you know, in West Hartford, uh, where I live. We saw five pedestrian fatalities in about a six-month period, and I think this is, is and is being played out throughout the state. Really, uh, this was this effort was truly led by um, Representative Roland Lamar from New Haven, mm -hmm. and you know when I say like the the level of work that he put into creating another tool for municipalities to install, mm -hmm. they're referring to automated enforcement devices, but it can be a combination of red light cameras or speed cameras. Okay, um, but it's also going to be it's one of those. It's just not carte blanche. You're not going to see them on every intersection. Mm -hmm. um, DOT has to come up with with guidance that are going to take into, you know, a number of factors: history of accidents at said intersection or traffic citations, um, the economic, or you know, the looking at dispersing them so it doesn't in, disproportionately impact significant, you know, certain areas of a, mm -hmm. of a city. Um, so once DOT develops their guidelines, municipalities will have to develop a plan that they can roll these out at a local option and in designated areas. So pedestrian mm -hmm. safety zones that are designated um, or like school zones. And we just looked at this, this is a, and the, the big myth we want to dispel, it's not a, a not a municipal revenue grab, that this is not okay. something, uh, fees are capped, I think it's $50 for the first one and 75 for subsequent violations. Um, but this is a, how do we promote pedestrian safety? And I think mm -hmm. we can all say after COVID, I don't know. People forgot how to drive, but yeah. it's it is dangerous out there. And how do we come about? I think Greg Howard from Republican from uh, Stonington said this might not be the perfect bill, but we've got to try something. Yeah. Um, yeah. So really, kudos to the the labor that, as you said, Roland Lamar put into this uh, and providing this option for some municipalities. And I think you'll see our our urban areas and some ring suburbs be the first mm -hmm. to do it. And I think our other towns will kind of look and see how it rolls out. Um, and then even once you do a plan, it has to be renewed every number every few years based mm -hmm. on the data uh, to see how it's working. So again, it's not where how do we improve safety? But we don't want to target. We don't want to just put these on every intersection yeah. to catch 
that role, you know, I didn't, I'm two miles an hour over the speed limit. It's, we yeah. want to just catch the pervasive, uh, the people that are just not paying attention and, and really posing a risk for everybody out there. Yeah, it's, it's not some sort of mass surveillance state thing. It, it's people on their phones not paying attention at busy intersections is one of the real issues. Um, and, and that's what we're hoping for. I keep trying to convince yeah. my wife because uh, she's on uh, she's on the other side of this. She, one, she's so. on, on the, the anti-camera side. <laughs> <laughs> There's one in every house. Um, another uh, issue that's obviously near and dear to our hearts is the Connecticut Municipal Employees Retirement System, or SEMERS. Um, and there's modifications to this that address the sustainability of it um, and anticipated saving Connecticut taxpayers almost $30 million this year and 843 over the next 30. Can you talk about uh, SEMERS? Certainly. I think, you know, this is, uh, you know, again, I just want to acknowledge the the tireless effort of Comptroller Sean Scanlon, who put a working group together uh, starting in March, and they met uh, basically over the next two months uh, to come up with a plan to help alleviate some of the costs of, of Seamers. Seamers is a great retirement plan, uh, but the way it's structured, it's in state statute, mm -hmm. and the burden, financial burden, is mostly borne by municipalities. And with the uh, investments not producing the returns that they had historically, mm -hmm. uh, but also the number of retirees and a whole bunch of other factors. Um, towns were were spending an inordinate amount to help fully fund the Seamers program. Mm -hmm. And it was becoming unsustainable. And uh, recognizing that, uh, as I said, Comptroller Scanlon put a work group together and they came up with a plan basically to re-amortize the, the, the fund debt uh, mm -hmm. from 17 years to 25 years. That's the that's the provision that's going to give the immediate relief okay. of the $30 million. The other $840 million that you mentioned uh, will come about over the next 30 years because of some of the changes to the COLA. Right now, the way the COLA is set up is an automatic uh, 2%. Uh, 2%. Mm -hmm. You know, you could have an inflationary environment that uh, prior to this that was at you know, 1% or what have you, mm -hmm. but the COLA, you'd have to pay out 2%. So this will gradually reduce that 0.5 of 1% each year until it gets to zero. So we're lowering the floor and that's going to produce uh, significant savings. We also, just to point out, we raised the cap right now. It's capped at 6%, okay. basically 2% to 6%. Again, in this inflationary environment, the retiree would actually be able to capture, I think it's right now at like 6.3% inflationary rate. We went up to 75 So in these high inflationary environments, they'll be able to keep up with mm. um, those, those costs. Uh, the other thing too, is they instituted a drop plan. And what this is, is a deferred retirement option plan. This is actually okay. to incentivize employees to stay. Okay. So they pay into a fund and they get a lump sum after five years upon their retirement. It, it's an incentive to keep people working longer, mm -hmm. um, which is, you know, you want more people paying into the system in order to, you know, subsidize yeah. those who are retired, uh, kind of like Social Security in, in that respect. Other two uh, important provisions that I just want to point out is it did reform the governance structure. Okay. Uh, so municipalities will have a greater voice and uh, input mm. as far as what the plan should provide, and and um, as they as they contemplate, you know, some of the changes and some of the uh, contribution rates. 
Uh, the other part of that is that there's going to be data collection. This data collection mm. is actually for non-CMERS towns. See what retirement okay. plans those towns are providing and uh, just to provide some data on that and see what best practices uh, they may want to recommend in the future. And I think the important part of this, too, is that there's a commitment of that working group to meet in the interim between now and next session to see if there's an opportunity to come to an agreement on, mm -hmm. for lack of a better term, a tier two seamers plan. Mm -hmm. And this would get into other factors as far as retirement age, years of service, um, and also contribution rates. Yeah. So, um, you know, we're, we've been kicking the door on this for years. Uh, we have, I know there's some reticence by some of our actually non-seamers towns mm -hmm. uh, who are concerned how they may be impacted by these changes and they're going to have a seat at the table during the interim process as well, which I think is important. Yeah. Uh, and for our seamers towns, they can budget better now. They'll be able to plan better and uh, it is more sustainable in the long term. I, I just want to thank, if I can thank two members on this, uh, Steve Stefanow from Manchester and uh, also Kurt Miller uh, from Ansonia, who both uh, were part of that working group and, and gave the inordinate amount of time on it. <laughs> so they did a good job. And I think that and this, again, is another example of, you know, us being able to reach across, um, you know, kind of reach across the divide. Um, I don't, you know, this wouldn't have happened without, you know, a compromise with with the representatives of the labor unions. You know, and I really think we have to thank them for understanding that, you know, again, it's not about do we want to provide benefits or not, but, you know, how can we do it in a fiscally responsible and sustainable way? Yeah. And, you know, their willingness, again, for everybody to kind of give a little bit to, to you know, to ensure that we, uh, you know, fiscal stability moving forward uh, is key, as opposed yeah. to us just trying to jam it down their throat and them saying no. When you sit down and, and you talk, you realize you probably have more in common. So it would not have been possible without Comptroller Scanlon bringing our side uh, and the unions back together and saying, hey, we need a we need a path forward. You know, when you talk to your talk to your opponents, for lack of a better term, yeah, you, you find your there's more in common than there is opposed. You are listening to the Municipal Voice on WNHH 103.5 FM. What were some onerous unfunded mandate things that were happening in, in this session? I'll point out one. Uh, there was, you know, solid waste reform. You know, mm -hmm. they, they closed. Um, I can never remember what the what it actually stands for, but it's the mirror plant up in Hartford was shut down. And I the, think the, the burning trash burning plant. Correct. Yeah. yeah, it was. Again, they needed uh, serious uh, commitment or investment in their existing facility. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the, the state made a decision not to invest those funds there and rather close it down and cap it. And yeah. I think part of the uh, important part of that is, is that now our municipalities have to truck those towns that were mirror towns mm -hmm. have to truck their waste out of state. Yeah. Uh, so the state proposed uh, putting a $5 fee uh, mm -hmm. without any real statewide plan. And uh, so we fought that. Uh, we didn't think that was appropriate until they actually came up with a full funding plan to start charging towns for uh, uh, um, lack of foresight, really. Mm -hmm. uh, there was other provisions of that that uh, would have mandated uh, organic waste recycling at the mm -hmm. residential level. Um, and also, uh, again, EPR, Extended Producer Responsibility mm -hmm. for Packaging. Again, we were opposed, 
pretty much member wide on the five dollar mm -hmm. fee, uh, and we were successful. Even though I know the governor's office was very, very adamant that they wanted these funds just to demonstrate, you know, for bonding purposes to help uh, move us forward on a, yeah. a potentially another trashed energy plant. But until mm -hmm. one is cited, it's difficult to, for our membership to accept that. So, I, you know, we understand, again, that the state's in a difficult position. And again, we want to collaborate, but we didn't think that was the right approach. And as far as the organic composting, they did expand it for more commercial entities. Mm -hmm. uh, it does include, depending on the volume of waste, you know, have educational facilities. So this could capture some of our like school, school cafeterias and stuff like that. Yeah. And a lot of towns are already doing this at the school district level. Mm -hmm. uh, so that's something that I think is a good, again, way to start to move forward. I think at the residential level, again, we need the infrastructure to be a little bit more built out in order for the, us to be able to accommodate that. Uh, and then the EPR, like I think our membership that's for packaging, I think our membership is uh, open to that. And again, what does that look like? Mm -hmm. You know, how does that uh, work? I think this is one of those things, again, that the uh, you know, leadership in both the House and Senate thought we came up short. So we mm -hmm. know that this is coming back next year and working with them on uh, hopefully a statewide solution. Yeah. And uh, was there some concern with the uh, OSTA stuff this year? Yeah, there was a bill that, that had been put forward by the Department of Transportation. In one sense, it's related to pedestrian safety. But the way that the bill was written, OSTA is the Office of State Traffic Authority. Mm -hmm. um, and they're the ones who kind of set all the rules um, and regulations for our roads, road okay. signs, lights, time, you know, timing on lights. All of those are set in statute or in regulation. Mm -hmm. It's a, a big section of our general statutes. And the original bill would have said that if you have a violation, if you aren't following any of these just innumerable rules, mm -hmm. that you would have lost your town aid road, uh, which is a... a perennial $60 million bonding source for our municipality, mm -hmm. very important. So we push back on that. Well, you any, any one of those tons and tons of rules, if you have one of them, you could lose all your funding. Potentially. And there wow. wasn't okay. a process. And that's why it was so onerous. I mean, this is, you should have a double yellow line instead of a single yellow line. If you have a child at play sign, I mean, they're very nitpicky. Yeah. We know that that wasn't the intent of DOT. But again, when you have to look at the law and say, but this, then if that's not your intent, then let's clean this up. Mm -hmm. and, and until we do, we can't support that. And so DOT was willing, you know, we work with the legislature. We talked to DOT repeatedly. They pulled back on this. This is something we'll look at and say, okay, how do we get compliance without being opening our municipalities up to just, you know, really nitpicky bureaucracy? And just some of the other ones, I figure, you know, as we're getting close to the end here. We started with property taxes. We can end with mm -hmm. property taxes. The There are a hundred mandated property tax exemptions. And every year there's a dozen, two dozen new property tax exemptions that are proposed mm -hmm. or they want to expand them, you know, and some of these truly tug at your heartstrings and they're, and they're yep. tough, but, you know, as a policy, we testify against every single property tax exemption and say, mm -hmm. until we address the overall system, it is not fair for the state to, you know, provide a tax exemption for any particular group, yeah. you know, in dear goodwill, and then literally hand the bill to pay for it to our towns and cities. So, at times, it's tough to testify against some of these these bills because of the heartstrings that they pull yeah. at. But I don't, you know, I'm sure there's something slipped in someplace. But I think we were largely successful in holding the line mm -hmm. on on new property tax exemptions yeah. and saying until we fix where we're at, stop. Yeah. You know, when you're in a hole, stop digging. And that's yeah. where we are. We're hope with the legislature. We I think we were successful in in, in at least 
we didn't dig further this year. Brian, do you have any thoughts on any of that? To add to that, I think what people don't recognize, you know, the state's, you know, doing very well financially. We're, you know, a rainy dang fund is full. But if you look at municipalities, there, there's a lot of, they're strained. And a lot of it is the inflationary costs that people don't put into account, like higher energy bills, you know, increases in health care. And I think that's why we fight so hard to fully fund and try to fulfill the commitments that the legislature has made, both in education, but also our pilot programs. Uh, and until we get a revenue diversification that expands uh, beyond just the property tax, I, I think, you know, that that's the position that we have to hold. And we have to be vigilant because, you know, individually, Randy just mentioned there was a hundred different tax exemptions. What's someone might say, well, this is a little one. It doesn't cost mm -hmm. that much. But when you add it up and now you have 101, 102, it's a death by a thousand cuts. And, um, you know, it's very important uh, that we educate uh, General Assembly members and legislators mm -hmm on those true impacts uh, in an aggregate and cumulative basis. Great. So you guys are resting up now. You just finished one session, but I'm going to go ahead and ask uh, about next session. What do you see as some of the issues that are going to be coming back next year? And how do you prioritize which ones as an organization we focus on? We actually just had our legislative committee meeting uh, this past Tuesday. And, mm -hmm. and that's one of the things that we've already started. We've already looked at the 2024 session coming up. I think, you know, um, some of the issues we spoke to today will be coming back, solid waste, uh, affordable housing or housing reform will be two of the key issues. I think uh, the other part of it is, is finding a reliable, sustainable funding source for the cancer presumption bill, mm. uh, can, uh, firefighter cancer relief fund rather. And I think those are some of the highlights. Now, how do we figure out what's important? Our members yeah. tell yeah. us. <laughs> they they reach out uh we have our policy committee process and that's another area where people bring up their different ideas um but usually we hear from our members saying you know this, these are our thoughts on this individual bill or concept and then we try to translate that into our advocacy that's great well brian randy thanks for coming on today and giving us the load on everything that happened in the, the capitol this session and uh keep up the good work all right. Hey, thank you, Matt. Thank you, Matt. Have a good one. We'd like to thank our sponsors at Gateway Community College and Housatonic Community College. Learn more at gatewaycp.edu and housatonic.edu. The Municipal Voice is a co-production by CCM and WNHH 103.5 FM. Gavin Maloney is our executive producer. Christopher Gilson is our producer. Harry Draws is on the boards. And I'm Matt Ford, your host. Be sure to check out our Facebook page and give us a like, and watch out for our CCM chat series on our YouTube page.